Hey guys, welcome to episode 74 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So first we just want to say that we hope you are all well and staying home. If you or a loved one is ill, we wish for a speedy recovery. And like they say, we're all alone together. Sorry, I know that, that's so cheesy. <laughs> that was terrible. Um, I know. But is you know, though, the, well... Anything the, you want to add? Yeah, you know what the truth is? We're all in quarantine, or I should say most of us. And um, we just have to try to make the best of the little things. You know, at least we're home with our families. And, you know, if you have any pets, that's cool. And uh, at least we have electric and we have food. So, you know, just try to make the best of it and we'll all get through it together. That's true. And thank you for everyone who is considered an essential worker and you're out there on the front lines. We appreciate everything you're doing. And maybe we can bring you some happiness with stories of murder. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it doesn't sound too great, but hey, I know <laughs> it's what we it's what all of you look forward to and we look forward to it. So let's roll with it. OK. All right. So let's get started on today's case. John, you're going to be excited about this because I'm bringing you something we haven't done in a while and you like talking about a disappearance. Oh, my God. Yes. Finally. <laughs> you're the theory guy. I know you like that. Love it. And this one, I promise, is a wild ride because. Last time we had a two-part episode, and that was kind of a lot of information. It was a really interesting case that a lot of people haven't heard of. But sometimes when there's a lot of information, it's kind of dense. So this is a nice, like, kind of palate cleanser, if you will. Let loose type of episode? Yes. Okay. Okay. So for those of you, I know sometimes what listeners say, and they don't like that disappearances don't have like endings like there's kind of an open-ended but this one has an open-ended but still leaves I'm sorry this one has an ending but it kind of leaves us with a lot of questions so the best of both worlds I would say I like that so when you look into statistics on missing persons in the United States you will find some interesting information based off of the 2019 stats that were released in February of this year from the National Crime Information Center In 2019, 448,099 people under 21 had gone missing. So it's really close to half a million people in one year under 21. Now, of those under 21, 53% of those were female and 47% were male. Most disappearances were family custody related, as you would expect with children. However, when we move to stats on missing persons age 21 and over, things take an interesting change. First, the number drastically drops to 161,108 people. And this makes sense. You think adults, they kind of don't go missing. But if you think this, you would be incorrect. In fact, law enforcement testimony states that these statistics are skewed because most adults can't be reported missing. Because they are, in fact, adults, especially if they live alone. They have the free will to do whatever they choose and go wherever they choose. Sometimes adults just want to disappear. Yeah. But something else changes when you look at the numbers for missing persons 21 and over in the male to female ratio. Whereas the missing persons differ between males and females for numbers under 21, only by 3%. The difference in males and females in those missing 21 and over is 11%. So that means that 61% of all missing persons 21 and over are males. 
I mean, that's that's a little odd there. That's uh, interesting. And what makes that more interesting is that when you talk about like statistics within the United States, for every 100 females, there's 97.87 male. So males make up a less percentage of females in this country, but the missing 21 and over is 61%. So it is interesting that males kind of walk off a little bit more or go disappearing when they're older. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So why are adult males disappearing at such a higher rate than females? Now, I'm not just talking about getting up and leaving your family or moving away. I'm talking about disappearing without a trace. One day there and one day completely gone. Your family and friends that once thought they knew you find out quickly that maybe they didn't and it breaks their hearts a little bit. Or maybe you met an unfortunate end and people just will never find out. And that is what happened to the Fusca family from Olathe, Kansas in the summer of 2009 when their loving 22-year-old son, Michael Braden Fusca, left one day and never came back. The details of his disappearance are confusing and contradictory. Did he simply need to get away from his family because he was harboring a secret? Or did something more sinister happen to him? Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows, if you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Michael Braden Fusca was born on May 19, 1987, in Johnson County, Kansas. All those who knew him called him Braden. He grew up in a loving household with two sisters and parents, Todd and Starla. He grew up loving the outdoors. He and his family were always out on their boat in the summer, fishing, water skiing, wakeboarding, or on their jet skis. During the fall and winter months, Braden was always hunting with his father. He had been ever since he was five years old. The Fuscas were very supportive parents, always pushing their children to be independent and pursue what they were passionate about. This was the case in 2009. Todd and Starla knew that their son was very into the outdoors, and school and an office job just really wasn't for him. He was currently working security at a Bass Pro shop, somewhere he could see himself working long-term maybe at a management level. He loved being by the fishing and hunting supplies and could see himself there, or in a similar place for the rest of his life. In the past, he had looked into working on being a gaming warden, but that was something that required an associate's degree. So, and he knew like college kind of really wasn't for him. So that's why he chose to go the route of Bass Pro Shop. Yeah, I mean, sometimes college just isn't for you, you know? I mean, sometimes you just got to kind of switch up your path a little bit, so. Right. I mean, at least he, he, at least he acknowledged that, because that's half the battle. Exactly. And then um, he chose something that was kind of like a little bit more up his alley. Right. So whatever he was planning to do, it was obvious that he wanted to turn his passion into a career. And really, what more could parents want for their child? So when Braden was 21, almost 22, he had a job in the fields it was clear he wanted to be pursuing a career in, and he approached his parents about moving out of their house, and they were really supportive of this. They were excited for this stage in their son's life, and they helped him move into a two-bedroom apartment with a friend that he had from high school. And this apartment was in Lawrence, Kansas. 
His parents said in an interview that they were excited because they felt it was their job as a parent to create a strong and independent person that will one day be able to raise a family of their own. And this was his first step in doing that. Yeah, I mean, you always want that for for your kid. I mean, that's the goal, right? I mean, you want them to be able to just fend for themselves and move on. Because nowadays you have so many people that because of, you know, whether it's financial or just economy-wise, it's hard to leave. So you, oh, yeah. you could have, you know, kids that are actually there and they're there till like they're 28. <laughs> it happens. I wish that happened for us. <laughs> uh, you know what? To be honest, so do I. <laughs> but probably hey. be in a house right now. Yeah. So now Lawrence, Kansas is a college town. It is home to the University of Kansas. So it was more than likely that the boys were, at the time, getting the best of both worlds. They were working and independent, but also having the same fun that the college kids around them were as well. It was a smart move. That is a smart move. (laughs) Yeah, you can go to all the parties and attend them. You got the girls, you you can meet some new friends. I mean, that's the best thing you could possibly do at that age. Right. So... Good for them. Yeah, because sometimes people feel like when they go into the working world that they kind of miss out on that college experience, but now they're getting the college experience and continuing their careers. Without paying the tuition. (laughs) Right. So this brings us to the summer of 2009, after Brayden had turned 22, specifically the morning of July 15th. Brayden had spent the night at his new girlfriend's house. She was a college student that he had met at a party thrown by a mutual friend on campus in May. So they'd been together for like about a month and a half. The relationship was new, so Brayden had yet to tell his family about the relationship. In fact, he only casually mentioned it to friends. When he awoke in the morning, he gave her the good old Irish goodbye. He left without saying anything. Girls usually don't like when that happens, especially when like you're their boyfriend. Yeah, it's a little... (laughs) It's not gonna... It's not in good taste, I guess. (laughs) No. So the girl, her name is Megan, actually heard his vehicle being started in the parking lot because he was parked really close to her bedroom window, and that's what woke her up. So she looked out the window and saw his car driving out of the parking lot, and she decided to send him a text because, as she will say in an interview later with police, he had really been not acting like himself the night before, so she thought something was up with him. So she sends a text that says so we aren't saying goodbye now oh it's a rough one to receive (laughs) that is you don't want to get that (laughs) no you don't so the response that she gets is kind of weird and cryptic because you know it's 2009 everyone's got their blackberries texting is really how young people do communicate so brayden had always been very vocal via text with megan so him sending a cryptic text message back to her was a little strange and out of character, something that had continued from the night before where she was saying he seemed quiet and preoccupied. So his response to her was simply, goodbye, Megan, which is a little strange. Yeah, it's very cut and dry. That's a little bizarre. Yes. So once he left Megan's house, Brayden went back to his apartment where he packed kind of like an overnight bag. He told his roommate that he was headed to his parents' house and he was going to be spending the night there. His roommate didn't think anything about this because Brayden often went home. It was about 30 miles from his apartment in Lawrence to his parents' house in Olathe, and he made the journey quite often. 
He was really close with his mother and he loved grilling with his father. And especially because it's summertime, this is something that the two did often. They liked to share the like grilling secrets. It was kind of like the thing that they had together, which is really nice. A Kansas barbecue is probably the best thing you could ever attend. If it, you know, I if know. it's like, you know, because we don't get anything like that up here. So I'd love that. Well, we live in an apartment, so we can't grill anything. <laughs> True, though, but I'm just saying, like, in general, though, we don't have, like, all the good, like, barbecue, barbecue sauce, secrets yeah. and barbecue sauce. Hell yeah. Yeah, I would That's say Midwest barbecue is probably amazing. That's where it's at. The second we get a house, we are going to, probably before we even buy furniture, get a grill and a dog. Yeah, I know. Our priorities probably aren't, like, <laughs> there, but whatever. I have been... We've been deprived for years. That is true, but I'm... Okay, guys, really quickly, I have gone out of my way to watch countless hours of youtube on how to like grow sp- me it's yes. really weird <laughs> i know but i have to be on my game like you have to i'm yeah, a guy you are right? prepared you're prepared I have to be prepared you know i gotta know the spices and everything anyway i'll start pinteresting how to clean the house properly fantastic i guess okay. i don't know that'll Whatever. be my role <laughs> sorry we're very traditional here so there's something wrong with brayden's story to his roommate about going to his parents house his parents aren't home They had taken an overnight trip, and they weren't home that afternoon. They were supposed to be returning home that night, but they weren't expecting their son over. So we know this is the case because Brayden and Starla, his mother, texted each other every day. They were texting on July 15th when Starla informed her son that her and his father had made it back to town after their trip. She told him that they had a wonderful trip, but they were excited to be home. Brayden told his mother that this was great. And she sent a text to her son around 2.25 p.m., telling him that she was sorry to cut their conversation off, but her and her father were at the movie theaters and the show was supposed to start. So he told her to enjoy the movie, and that was the last text exchange that Brayden would ever send. And that last text that he sent was at 2.29 p.m. When the couple got home late in the afternoon, they unpacked from their trip. Todd, Brayden's father, decided to check the online banking for the family. There was one account the Fusca family all shared. Todd revealed later to the police that the children used this as an emergency fund. Like, for example, if a bill or rent was due and maybe the children hadn't received their paycheck yet, they would take temporarily from the fund and then replace what they had taken from the fund once they get paid. So it was kind of like a just-in-case fund for the children yeah, like a little safety net that's cool yeah that is actually really nice that they provided that for their children maybe we need to take notes and do yeah, that we yeah. should see i think that's um something that speaks volumes about the relationship that the fusca family had together like it was a very open family where like if you're having problems the door is open to exp- like kind of like say like hey i'm having an issue yeah, to have the conversation and the help is there yeah. like without question hmm. so i think that reveals a little bit about the family so the most really though that todd tells the police the kids had ever taken out was around three to four hundred dollars but they noticed that um brayden had just taken out eight hundred dollars which was an unusually high amount for to be taken out of the account especially without one of the kids saying something yeah, that is odd. Like, what would he need eight hundred dollars for? I mean, if um, I mean, unless he has bills due, but yeah, they especially would know. Yeah. without saying like, "Hey, I'm gonna take eight hundred dollars out." It's for this because it is a little bit of a high amount, yeah. double than what was normal. 
Starla and Todd Fusca found the $800 transaction to be strange. So they decided to call their son and just ask him about it, right? They're a pretty open family. Braden didn't pick up the phone, so his father just left him a voicemail stating, hey, we saw you took out the $800. Is everything okay? And then he even goes as far to say, do you need more money? Because he's concerned that his son's in a little bit of trouble. So after this, they just went to sleep. Um, Brayden was living on his own, and his parents really wanted to respect their son's newfound independence, and they didn't want to seem like they were overbearing, so they kind of just gave him his space a little bit. They assumed that they would get a phone call from their son in the morning, explaining the whole situation. But the next morning, Brayden didn't call. The whole day passed, and they didn't hear from their son, which was unusual. If they call him, he usually answers or gets back to them pretty shortly afterwards. They reason with each other and think that maybe he got a last minute shift at work or he was out with friends, like they were trying to calm each other down. But when they still can't get in touch with him by Friday the 17th, they decide to take some action. They drive around to his usual hangouts, his friends' houses, and his apartment complex, but they can't find his Ford Explorer anywhere. They do not contact the police department because, again, they want to respect the privacy of their 22-year-old son. They chose to call some of his friends, well, the ones that they had the numbers of. Because, like, as a parent, you really don't have all of your kids' friends' numbers, just his closest ones. Right. His friends told him that they hadn't seen him since Tuesday the 14th, and they didn't know where he was. They also placed a call to a girl named Elena. She was Braden's ex-girlfriend. The couple had broken up about a year and a half ago, but they had dated for four years. So as far as Brayden's parents knew, he was still trying to get back with her. And in fact, this was the case up until he met his new girlfriend, Megan. So he was kind of still like stuck on his ex-girlfriend. It's hard to give up your first love, especially when it's four years long relationship. So he was trying to get back with Elena, but then he meets Megan at a party. So it's a fresh new relationship. You kind of get caught up in those when you're young. Oh, yeah, of course. So when they talked to Elena, she said that she actually saw Brayden at a gas station on Wednesday the 15th. How's that for a small town in middle America? Yeah, right. (laughs) You are going to run on T-Rex. So um, she tells Brayden's parents that it was a weird interaction because usually when she saw him, he was friendly and talkative. But this time he was quiet and pretty quick to end the conversation. So, in fact, this was just hours before he was going to have his text message conversation with his mother. So they're able to kind of, like, create this timeline of what his last day was. Which is actually really rare, too, if you think about it. Sometimes there's missing holes. So, so far, so good. Yeah, we know that he left um, his girlfriend's house in the morning. He did go to um, his apartment, and he said, I'm sleeping at my parents. We know that he went to a gas station, and... We know that he had a text message conversation with his mother. And also the withdrawal at the bank. Right. So, of course, this is weird to his parents because the last they heard, their son was, like, still in love with this girl. So why would he kind of, like, blow her off? But we can rule out this strange behavior because his parents and his ex-girlfriend obviously don't know that he might have just simply moved on and started dating somebody else. The only side note that I'm going to make here that's a little interesting about these two women is that... Both of them give interviews to police and the media. And when they do, they explain Brayden as two completely different people. Elena, his girlfriend from when he was 16 to 20, explained him as 
this quiet guy who really didn't put himself out there too much. And because of that, you know, he didn't have like this huge group of friends. Whereas Megan is going to say that she didn't see that side of him. Like Elena's like he was shy, but he was like the nicest guy in the world. But Megan is saying that Braden was actually really outgoing and she was the one who was shy and he worked to get her out of her shell he was the one who like walked in a room at a party and everyone got excited and he was kind of like the life of the party. So these two girls explain him to be a different person. Yeah. See, I mean, I don't want to, um, I wouldn't write it off, but I, I have to say it's kind of normal if you think about it. I mean, if you were to ask my first girlfriend to you, my wife, you would get two different people. I mean, I was a, young a young adult and i'm an older adult now i'm completely different like i i am not the same so you grow into yourself and your personality and character form so i don't really think that that's that big of a deal yeah i completely agree with you i think that really we can just kind of like talk that up to brayden growing into the man that he's going to become exactly and you know what he's also with his second girlfriend i mean you got to think too he's also trying to you know, impress her a impress little her. bit. So he's yeah. gonna have to come out of his shell. So you I write that off. Get to move to a different town. Like sometimes people go away to college because essentially we can kind of like think this is what he did because he moved to like this huge college town. You get to like reinvent yourself and become the person maybe you did always want to be, but you never had the opportunity to be because you kind of get tied down into roles when you're in high school or you're still in the small town that you grew up in. Right. Exactly. You know? So on Sunday, July 19th, Brayden's parents are really anxious. His mother describes this as just a feeling that she got. She sensed that something was really wrong. So she asked her husband to check if their handgun was still in their closet. Todd goes upstairs to look. The week prior, their granddaughter had been at their house. So when their granddaughter comes to visit, Todd always moves the gun safe a little higher up in the closet so she can't get her hands on it. So he knew that the gun was present in the closet on like the Monday before. So when he went to check if the gun was there, he realized that it was not. He told Starla and they decided that at this point they had to go to the police. Yeah, because I mean, you have to report a gun missing. So. Right. And on top of that, you haven't heard from your son. So <laughs> you got a missing go. son and a missing gun. <laughs> Should go. So they went to the Olathe Police Department and explained the situation that they were in. However, the officer they spoke to told them that they were out of luck. And this is the case when most people go to police stations to report adults missing, that they're always met with some sort of resistance. So the officer tells them that Brayden's 22 years old. He's an adult. And sometimes adults, they go away for a few days, especially when they're young. So next thing that kind of was holding them back was that Brayden no longer lived with them. So they, in fact, could not report him missing, the officer told them. His roommate would actually have to report him missing to the police department in Lawrence, not the police in Olathe. So hearing this news made the Fuscas feel even more helpless than they had in the previous days. Todd explained to the officer how concerned they were about their son, and he casually said, and his Beretta. So that's when the officer stopped him. The fact that the missing man had a gun that was not registered to him made this a special case, and they were connected to a detective right away who did file a missing persons report. So it worked out for them that the gun was also missing because police really took it a little bit more seriously because he does have a gun. 
first off, I think that's pretty unfortunate. It's sad. Well, well, the, the fact that he's missing, but the fact, well, what I really am saying here is, if it wasn't for the gun being missing, which most most likely was taken by Brayden, mm-hmm. they would have never done anything about it. They would have done nothing about it. I know it's sad. So it's it's just it's so weird, and I think that number one, it's probably because of resources and money, probably as well. Right, and jurisdictions. Right. So they would have been sent on a wild goose chase, but because the gun was present, the police were now in control of the investigation, and the Fuscas were asked to go home and await any news, which is hard to tell parents to do when their kid's missing. Oh my God, yeah. 22 is still essentially a child, right? You're always going to be a child to your parents, so they wanted to protect him. The fact that their son was missing and had taken their gun was keeping them up at night. There were a few things that bothered them about this. Was Brayden in trouble? Did he want to harm himself or possibly protect himself from something? They were also thinking that... Maybe he owed someone some money, and that's why he took out that large deposit. But the weirdest thing was this. Brayden was very comfortable around guns, right? He'd been hunting his whole life since he was five years old. He also owned a lot of guns, including a handgun. So why would he have to take his parents' handgun? Like, why would he have to drive 30 miles to get his parents' handgun when he already has one himself? Well, where we are right now, the only thing that I can think of Obviously, all guns have serial numbers, so you would want that gun to not be associated with yourself. But it's your family, so it'd be pretty quickly connected. True, but that's only that's one thing. Or the other is, did he have a handgun, or was it a rifle of some sort? It was a handgun. Like he had rifles and a handgun. So the only thing I can come up with is that he wanted it not to be completely traced right back to him. Okay, ready for that, my thing? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. If it's a money thing, which we can maybe think of because of the $800. Had he already sold his guns? Hmm. Wouldn't his roommate know? It, you know what's really interesting about the roommate? Throughout this investigation, the roommate's really not spoken to a lot. So we have really limited information from the roommate. I think the two lived very separate lives. True. Not to mention the fact if he, like he did mention, though, to police that he would visit his parents a lot. Right. So between splitting his time at his own place, at and his, his parents' place, and his new girlfriend, they probably didn't see each other much. Right. Um, so you're probably right. I do think, though, that the roommate could have been a little bit more of a resource. So it's, I felt it was odd that they he wasn't questioned a little bit more. But we'll get to that later on in the investigation. So they couldn't follow the directions the police gave them because who could just sit at home and wait for something to happen? They felt like the police truly didn't know their son. The behavior was so unlike Brayden that they felt they needed to take some of the investigation into their own hands because they're the ones who truly know their son. Brayden was on their cell phone plan, so they had access to his records. They printed out a detailed bill from their cell phone provider and texted the last 20 numbers that their son had contact with besides their own. The Fuscas texted the numbers and said that they were Brayden's parents and they had not seen their son in a while and they were wondering where he could be. They asked each of the numbers to give them a call back so they could gather more information. And after this, the calls started coming in from Brayden's friends. And most of the calls weren't really that helpful because they didn't know about his whereabouts on Wednesday the 15th. But two calls proved to be very useful in giving them information about their son. 
first is Brayden's roommate, who, like I said before, why wasn't he questioned about this information, like, first and foremost? Um, he tells Brayden's parents that on Wednesday, after a night of sleeping out, Brayden returned to get some of his things and told him that he was headed to their house to spend the night. Now, this was news to his parents because first, Brayden had not spent the night, nor did he even speak to his parents about spending the night. In fact, Wednesday, when they found out about the $800 and they called their son, he didn't even pick up their, his phone. And weren't they returning from uh, the movies or vacation? Yeah, they were. So, like, they stopped home from vacation to go to the movies, and then they went home afterwards. So, like, they weren't home to begin with. But, like, sometimes you can spend the night at home even if your parents aren't there, especially if you're 22. But, like, they usually would be informed by their kids if their kids were spending the night. Right. No, I know. But what I'm saying right now is what you just said is if he's doing something or trying to plan something by taking the money out, getting the gun, he already knows where he's going. There's no one there already. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm saying. So he, he knows that they're not there and he's going to an empty house. Correct. So there is some sort of planning going on from, you know, getting his things together, saying to the roommate that he's going to the parents, knowing they're not there. Yeah, it seemed like from the night before when he was at his girlfriend's house and she was explaining that he was really quiet, that I believe that's when the plan was beginning to formulate within his head. Well, I agree. So the Fuscas really thought about it. At one point, Brayden must have come home because their gun was missing and he hadn't been to their house in over a week. So they asked their neighbors if they had seen Brayden around the house lately. And they were in luck. One neighbor had seen him come to the house at around 10.40 a.m. on Wednesday. The neighbor waved hello to Brayden and he returned the hello and he continued doing his yard work. He said Brayden went inside for about 15 minutes and then came back out and waved goodbye as he was leaving. Isn't it crazy that he can get this information? Like, what a small town. Yeah, I mean, because everybody's so friendly. Yeah, and... um. It was really convenient that the neighbor knew the time as well. So now we can add that to the timeline of Brayden's day. He did return. Once he left his apartment, he did go to his parents' house. And most likely because he was only inside for 15 minutes, that is probably when he got the gun. Right. And also, the parents didn't get home until later afternoon, I believe. Right. If the movie started around 2.30, I mean, maybe they got home at 5. Right. So they definitely didn't have a chance to even be close to seeing him or missing him or whatever. Right. So Braden had never told them that he had been to the house when he was texting with his mother. Like, remember, she was, she was, they were talking about the trip and going to the movies. He never said, like, oh, I stopped by the house today. Right, exactly. So this was a secret they believed he was keeping. The second call that helped them out was from Megan, Brayden's new girlfriend. His parents didn't even know that she existed until this phone call, but she provided them with information about their son's whereabouts the morning of his disappearance. She also let them know that the night before he had been withdrawn and worried about something. She also let them know the night before he had been withdrawn and worried about something. The Fuscas brought all of this information to the detective working their son's case. And in turn, the detective interviewed both parties and all of the other 18 parties that Braden's parents had contacted. So, I mean, it does seem like the detectives are being receptive to the work that Braden's parents are doing. Because it does make sense about retrieving the phone records. If this was something the police wanted to do on their own, they would have to retrieve, um, they would have to retrieve consent to get the phone records. But here, they just 
can get them printed out. So the family's really helping with this investigation. It's yeah, I mean, it saves the cops, you know, um, time and resources. Yes. So the next day, the Fuscas get another phone call, but this time it's from the police. They finally had information. Braden's car had been found in Douglas, Wyoming, 730 miles away. I mean, that's pretty far. Yes. And it turns out the car was found on July 16th, only a day after Braden left Kansas. The highway patrol in Wyoming had found his Explorer on the side of a road. They had put his license plate number in the system, but didn't get any hits on it because this was July 16th before his parents placed the missing persons report. So that's why there was no hit on it. And because of this, and this request for information that was done by the highway patrolman was completed at 1040 a.m. on Thursday, July 16th. No one was near the car, so the patrolman put a notice of intent to impound it, which means if the vehicle is not moved within 10 days, it will be impounded. So this is actually really interesting because let's say he leaves his apartment, he goes to Olathe, we know that he got gas, we know at 1040 he got to his parents' house, he was there for about 15 minutes, so let's say he he hits the road at noon on Wednesday the 16th. Well, now you're going to tell me that in less than 24 hours he's traveled 730 miles. So he must have went straight through. I mean, he had to have. Right. So it really, the timeline's pretty complete here. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's because there's no other way for that vehicle to be where it is. Right. So as soon as Brayden was reported missing and his license plate number was reported in the system, the National Crime Information Center that I mentioned earlier in the show provided what they call a delayed entry hit. That is how the connection is made. So once he's reported missing, along with his license plate number, an alert comes up, this car was found in Wyoming. Braden's parents were so confused. He didn't know anyone in Wyoming, or even anyone in that direction of the United States. Their son only knew people from Kansas. So why would he be leaving the state, let alone travel 730 miles away, 24 hours after he left like it seemed like he was trying to get somewhere pretty quickly there has to be something wrong they just they didn't know what yeah i mean it's really bizarre i mean right now too like because you know i don't know everything about the case but I try, i'm trying to break it down as we go because i feel like that's the best way to do it so he went straight through but there's no way that that car that truck that ford explorer got there on one tank of gas it's impossible Oh, yeah. There's no way. So let's just say for argument's sake that that truck has a range of 300 miles, let's just say. You know, we'll be fair and say 350. Okay, well, he had to have stopped again to get gas. Yeah, at least twice at this point. Either once, if we're pushing it, twice. You know, it might have been twice, but let's just say one time more than he already stopped when he was in Kansas. Let's just say. Well, you're going to find out there was a really big stop. That mm. makes things okay. even more complicated. See, because that's what I'm saying, because there's no way he would get to where he was on one tank of gas. Right. So other people within, you know, from Wyoming to where he was had to have seen him. Kansas to Wyoming. That, yes, I'm sorry. Kansas there would have been Wyoming. sightings. Had to have been. Yeah. So shortly after Braden's car is found, a possible motive is too. Entering his name into the NCIC database is going to provide police with a mugshot. A really recent mugshot. It appeared that Braden was supposed to appear in court for a preliminary hearing on July 16th, the day after he left Kansas. 
So what did the 22-year-old whose criminal record consisted of a speeding ticket in 2007 do to get a mugshot? Here is what was collected through police reports and anecdotal evidence collected by the detective on Braden's case. In May, the Bass Pro Shop had made cuts to Braden's department. So instead of letting people go, they reduced the hours that the employees were receiving. Braden, who just moved out on his own, was only assigned eight hours of work a week, which is next to nothing. That's a big cut, yeah. This made it very difficult for him to pay his rent or his bills. As a result, um, it made him late paying the rent for both June and July. He was desperate for money. Don't forget, he also now has a new girlfriend. Money, like you got to spend money on that. Of course you do. Going out to eat, doing things. So one of the tasks that Brayden had to complete as security guard at the Bass Pro Shop was to bring the money from the registers to the safe at the back of the store at the end of the night. One night, he took some of that money and he never replaced it in the safe. Okay, so he's stealing now. (laughs) Yes. The store found out pretty quickly when the counts were off because he had taken more than $1,000. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Braden was confronted when he came in for work the next morning, which was July 9th. Braden confessed right away. The police were called and they took his statement. He said that he had the money in his apartment and that he was really sorry about what had taken place. The police drove him to his apartment and he retrieved the money that he had not yet spent and was driven back to the store where he returned a large portion of the money. They never said what the amount that he returned was, but it was almost all of the money. So after this, he was processed and spent the night at the New Century Adult Detention Center in Gardner, Kansas. Because of the amount that was stolen, it was over $1,000, he was charged with a felony-level theft. So he didn't want to call his parents to bail him out because he didn't want them to know what had taken place. But that could explain maybe what some of the $800 was for if somebody posted the bail for him. And then they were just going to pay him back? And he was paying them back, yeah. Okay, it's possible. So according to his roommate, he was really upset about what had taken place. He had never been in trouble before, so spending the night in jail was pretty traumatic for this kid. And he was frightened that he would have to go back. Okay, yeah. All right, well, there's a reason for him fleeing, maybe? Yeah, desperation. Yeah. Fear. Yeah. He was terrified. Brayden's parents were shocked to hear this information. In the past, he had told them everything. They didn't know why he didn't come to them, if he was having money issues. Again, nothing made sense. Their son was missing, and if he was found, he was facing felony charges in Johnson County. It was as if their worlds had been turned upside down. It seemed now that the preliminary hearing for the charges was what set this plan into motion, whatever it was. The detective believed that when Brayden left the apartment and told his roommate he was going to his parents' house, he was really leaving straight from there to go wherever he was headed. At this point, he had already gotten gas. We know that from his ex-girlfriend. He has a gun. We know that information from the neighbor. And he is thinking that this terrified kid who's scared, doesn't know what's going to happen, thinks his life is just ruined. And instead of facing it, he chooses to run. However, the detective tells the Fuscas that this whole situation is really messed up because in reality, it's not as bad as Brayden probably thought it was. 
He explained that the theft Braden committed was the lowest level felony theft there was in the state of Kansas, and most likely because he was cooperative, remorseful, returned most of the money, and didn't have a criminal record, he wouldn't receive jail time. But I think at this point, we're dealing with more than just his felony that he's running away from. I think it's more that feels he messed up that he messed up and that the career path that he chose is now ruined you can't go back to that whether or not it's a the smallest felony possible unfortunately in the world we live in today you have a felony on your record it's hard to get expunged it's hard to go seek employment when you have that type of like charge on you especially if you want to work at a at a store uh, as security or even as a salesperson they're right. not going to hire you it's very hard right he really was like when he was in high school he was like he wanted to be a game warden but he knew that getting his associate's degree kind of really wasn't for him so you're right this was his plan b to work at a bass pro shop and he was excited for his future there but he'd kind of cemented the fact that this store would probably never employ him again. Right. Sad. So there is no plan C. Right. And well, his plan C became maybe running away. Yeah. But it's, it is still bizarre that he would leave such a, a tight knit family that he had. They were rarely, they were really supportive. So it's, it's still a little bit of a stretch for me. Like I, I'm not totally convinced that that's, that he wouldn't go running to his parents. I mean, obviously there's holes, and we yeah. don't know the whole thing yet, but we're trying to piece this together, you know? Right. So Brayden was most likely unaware that he wouldn't be receiving jail time because he hadn't even made the steps to meet with a lawyer yet. The detective and Brayden's parents begin calling his cell phone and leaving messages for him, letting him know that if he returns, he wouldn't be facing jail time, and that everything would be all right, and that no one is ashamed. Everyone just wants him to return. But the voicemails were never answered. The Fuscas choose to retrieve their son's car from impound. They eerily make the same journey their son did weeks before. It took them 13 hours to reach Douglas, Wyoming. They chose only to like make stops for gas because they wanted to see like, okay, how much time would it take for us to do like the trip that their son did? It was kind of like investigative work for them. Yeah. They noted that once they were north of Cheyenne, everything was desolate. It was beautiful, but it was something where if something happened to Brayden, he would be very alone. But I do want to interject here because I just think it's so bizarre that Brayden's parents are going to get this car. I mean, it might be their property and the detective might think this is a cut and dry case of a kid who's just kind of like running away. But let's not forget that his car was abandoned and we don't know where he is and he has a gun. And the only piece of evidence, the biggest piece of evidence that they could have is this car. So why aren't the police retrieving it? Um, That's a good question because wouldn't you want to, like you said, analyze every possible thing you can in that car? Yeah, it's the biggest piece. There could be any amount. There could be one clue that could tell you where he is based on what's in that car. Right. And I know for a fact that the SUV, um, his Ford Explorer, was not searched by police prior to it being released to his parents in the impound lot. So I think it's really interesting that it was just given up to, I know his parents, but they're civilians. It's true. It is is a little bizarre. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was weird. So, okay, sorry. 
So when Todd and Starla Fusca get to the car, um, the first thing that Starla does is she checks under the front mat of the seat, and that's where she finds Braden's keys. Starla knew her son's habits. His Ford Explorer had a keypad that would unlock the car, and then he would get his keys from beneath his floor mat, so that's always where he left his keys. Okay. I mean, the car was locked, so... He just is the only one who knows the passcode on the... It's like right under the front door handle. You know how like the older explorers had that? Yeah, they still have that, actually. The fact that the keys were beneath the floor mat told Starla that Braden had left the car and locked it up. The question was whether or not he ever intended to return to the vehicle. Looking further into the SUV, they found a bit of a mess. Almost like Braden quickly rifled through what he had and took only what he needed because his clothes were all over the back seat. He did take with him his cell phone wallet and obviously the gun because it wasn't in the Explorer. Now, this is also a little like it's it's a little piece of information, but it meant a lot to Braden's parents. He had a love of gummy worms and he always had them in his pocket and like he would snack on them. But gummy, an open bag of gummy worms was left in the car. So she's saying like if he was just went out walking, like he would have taken them with with him. Yeah. I know it's just like a little thing, but like yeah. to a mother, that meant like a Something's big wrong. deal to yeah. her. Yeah. So all of the knowledge that is gained from these items being found in the car was nothing compared to the biggest piece of evidence. A receipt in the front seat. See what I mean here? There's like the only break in the case, a huge break in the case. The parents found it and have to bring it to the detective. Very strange. They also were the ones who first questioned the roommate and the girlfriend. I know this is a missing adult, but they are not aggressively investigating this case whatsoever. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's hard because they they kind of just interject. They like yeah. They like oh hey thanks for this hey thanks yeah we'll work on that oh hey thanks you know like there's no investigation being done by them yeah. and that's what they're supposed to do. I get it, like you said, adult. But I mean, come on now. They're missing. This person's missing. The parents want answers. The parents are going out of their way yeah. to gather information. The least you could do is just help them out here. I mean, I, I don't also want to say, and this is why I brought it up in the beginning, was that there's a difference between a 22-year-old female gone missing and a 22-year-old male gone missing because the implication of what that female was maybe abducted for is not what they would think a male would be like they would think okay a guy is gonna walk off but a female is gonna get abducted by a predator but we don't know what happened so i feel like it's also the fact that he's a guy yeah no i i understand what you're trying to say so anyway this receipt is a huge deal but it provides a bizarre question so the receipt is from a repair shop in wheatland wyoming it appears that while driving on the interstate close to the town of wheatland Braden blew his tire out at high speed. He stopped the SUV and walked to a nearby gas station, which was just like a little under two miles away. While there, he called a serviceman who would replace the tire, pick him up at the gas station, and then return him to his vehicle. The man who serviced the SUV was found. His name was Reuben Kaufman. He spoke with police and said that Braden was friendly and talkative. There was no indication that anything was wrong. He told him that his destination was the University in Billings, Montana. 
So he was headed to Montana. Kaufman said that the route that Braden was on would in fact take him to Billings, so this didn't seem odd to him. The bill for the service was $145, and that's not including tax and tip. But the strangest thing about this detail is that Braden's car was found one hour away from where it was serviced. So that brings up a lot of questions here. So of course, we're going to talk about all the unanswered questions in this case at the end of the episode, but I'm just going to pose it here to like get your minds thinking as the case continues. Why would Brayden, after blowing his tire, go through the trouble of walking two miles to a gas station, calling a serviceman to repair the tire, pay him with the very limited funds that he had, only to abandon that car one hour up the road? when there was no problems whatsoever with the vehicle. Interesting, right? It's interesting. It tells... Okay, I'll save it. I'm going to save it. Keep it in there. I'm going to. Well, Braden's parents found the information given by Kaufman very interesting because they do admit that their son did have an obsession with Montana ever since he was a kid. He loved the mountains and always wanted to be somewhere where there were mountains. When... At one point, he was interested in that whole game warden jobs. He was looking at going to Montana. I mean, Kansas, flat. Montana, mountains. That's where he wanted to go. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So the whole, like, Montana thing did resonate with them. So for the detective, the theory continues to form. A boy, scared of jail, runs away to the mountains like he always wanted to. But that still leaves so many unanswered questions. The Fuscas were so close, and it's hard to believe that their beloved son would abandon them. A call was placed to the Billings Police Department, and missing signs were placed at every truck stop from Kansas to Montana. But for six months, there was no leads. On February 3, 2010, the police received a phone call on the tip line that was listed on Braden's missing posters. It was a woman who worked at a Salvation Army soup kitchen in Cheyenne. Her name is Linda Curl. She claims to have seen Brayden eating at a kitchen and that they had extra bread that day. So they said like that he could take more bread than like the usual portions as to like one per person. So she said that he was like trying to stuff bread in his pockets and like putting bread loaves underneath his arms and that he had made a comment to her as he was taking all the bread that it was a long way back to Kansas. And if you're like fact checking this, this would make sense because Douglas is north of Cheyenne, which is north of Kansas. So in order for him to backtrack from Douglas to Kansas, he would have to pass through Cheyenne. So it doesn't make sense a little bit if, you know, this is him. She does comment that Brayden, who she believed is Brayden, looked a little too clean cut, not like the homeless population that they were used to seeing at at their kitchen all the time. So this is the best lead that they have had so far. So the detective goes to the kitchen, even though the sighting took place a week before Curl actually does tell the police about it. When the detective asks to see the receipts, um, he does find a receipt that detailed that clothes were given to someone who signed their name Brad Fusca. So this is a very uncommon last name. So I would say that It's interesting that someone would sign their name that way. And the way that you do spell Brayden, it does look like Brad and then YN. So when Starla is shown this receipt, she said that the handwriting does not look like her son's, but the signature did. So, so interesting detail. 
Others claim to have seen him around the town, and detectives and Braden's parents search the area, and they wait at places in, that he was seen at, like a McDonald's, a soup kitchen, and they just wait for him to show up, but they never do find him. They also search the area's homeless population, show them pictures of Braden, but no one knew who he was. So as no new clues arose, they eventually had to leave Cheyenne. It seemed like a dead end. The detective and Braden's parents said that they believe it is unlikely he would just put roots down in Cheyenne, right? Like if you're someone who's trying to start a new life, it seemed like he would really have followed through and went to Montana, not doubled back to Cheyenne. Also, it's really hard to kind of just like resurface as another person. Like, right. there are going to be red flags like, oh, here this person is. Not to mention you missed a court date as well. Yeah. To, you know, your felony. Well, after that, everything goes cold. And about 11 months after the disappearance, so a few months after that search in Cheyenne, they try to, like, find more information. So they conduct a comprehensive search of where Braden's car was left abandoned. That was kind of like their last-ditch effort, but... Nothing was found. Also, want to know why a comprehensive search wasn't done when the car was found. But it seems like there's a lot of backtracking investigation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Exactly. So no new advancements would come of Braden's case until 2015. When, on May 1st, a couple hiking near Wolf Creek at the base of Casper Mountain in Wyoming found skeletal remains. Through dental records, they were identified as belonging to Michael Braden Fusca. A weapon was recovered at the scene. It appeared that he had died from a gunshot wound to the head. It was determined that it was a self-inflicted wound. His body was found 70 miles away from Douglas. So when he left the car, he had traveled 70 miles to Casper Mountain. It could not be answered how or why He got there. Although his death was ruled a suicide, a lot of unanswered questions remain about the disappearance of Braden Fusca, which make it hard for the family to move on. That's pretty crazy. Um, In my mind, I I knew that the whole time. I mean, it makes sense, right? Uh I I just knew that that's what was going to happen as far as the suicide. What I thought about, though, was when they found the vehicle, this is what came to mind. Okay. Two things. Either, number one, he put the keys there, right? And took some of his belongings, right? And the weapon. And maybe flag walked until he flagged someone, got into their car maybe. And then, then from there got to that mountain and then kind of did the, you know, did the suicide. Or he just completely walked there the whole way. But, like, that's that's the first thing. Okay, yeah. His dad did make a comment that... It is noted that where the car was abandoned, about a mile away, there was a truck stop. So his dad was like, he was a really personable person. So he's like, I wouldn't put put it past my son going to the truck stop and like convincing someone to give him a ride. And the connection between Douglas, Wyoming and the Casper Mountains is an interstate route. Right. So it would have been very easy for him to hitch a ride. And then from there, continue to go up the mountain with whatever belongings he took with him, plus the the handgun. Right. So I, that's really, that's the, my first thing. But I really think that's, that is what it is. Because anything else after that would kind of be more of a stretch. Well, I think that 
unfortunately, if the whole time his intention was suicide and he was headed to Montana because that was the place he had always wanted to go. And he loved, he loved the mountains, but he had never been to Montana and that was like his life goal. So was that a place he wanted to commit suicide? And maybe there was so much going on and in his mind he was, I mean, listen, if that was truly his intention, he must have been panicked. So was he thinking, okay, let me get to now that I feel like I can't go further with my car. Let me go to the nearest mountain. There is. I think if we break everything down from start to finish, right? I think that he was 21, right? 21, 22? 22. So he's 22 years old. I think that it's possible that he was going through a lot. I don't think that this one felony was it, though. Like, there had to have been more. Maybe he was going through depression and He could have been knew. going through depression. He could have. I don't want to. That's such an easy way out. So I'm going to add to that. Um, the fact that he feels like all is lost because of his career, because of what he did, the embarrassment to his, himself and his family. Yeah. Um, and what light that would be that, you know, that would be paint, you know, like this thing that would be painted of him. Like, you know, like, yeah, you know, like, oh, look at him. He has a felony. Oh, he steals. Like, right. It ruined his image. It ruined his image. Correct. Um, And I think maybe he just all of those things together. He couldn't handle it. Right. Um. I think that, like you said, yeah, he always wanted to go there. I also think it's more than that. I also think that he went there because he wanted to. I also think he went there because he thought that no one would find him there. He probably also thought he didn't want anybody to find his body. Right. Right? Well, the only thing that's... There's a few things that are bizarre to me, but why would he go through the trouble of getting his car serviced and then abandon it an hour later? And when the guy who did his car, Kaufman said he was in great spirits. That doesn't sound like a panicked kid who's going to commit suicide. Right. But if you're already in that mindset already, it could it could Maybe be there change. and then change and then reappear and manifest in other right. ways. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, once again, I feel like it's so easy to just be, oh, that's it right there. Like, oh, it might have been depression. Oh, he, well, I don't know. I'm I not mean, sure. In reality, there were a lot of secrets that, it seemed that his family didn't know. I mean, did they come up pretty quickly? Yeah, because he'd only been arrested on July 9th. But what if there was something else that we still don't know about that had happened in his life? Like, there could have been more secrets. There I could mean, have been something else. It's totally possible, right? I mean, because he didn't tell his parents about his new girlfriend. Right. Like, if this was just simply a money issue, I think he could have went to his parents. There might have been something more. Because not only did he steal the money but then he also took another 800 out so do you think that he like owed somebody something maybe was it a i I don't want to like say like just guess and assume but there may be a possibility that he might have owed somebody some money for something whether you know drugs gambling i mean he didn't seem like a person who was into drugs drinking was really what he did he wasn't known for like being a pot smoker, like doing drugs, and he did maintain maintain his job pretty well. But I think that maybe he might have had other secrets. We don't know. Yeah. But I, I, I think yeah. that it would have to, I guess your world ending, right, as you know it, like the whole plan that you had would be pretty devastating. I'd hate to draw comparisons, right, because mm-hmm. you can never put yourself truly in someone else's shoes, right? Right. 
So I'll just share with the audience something that was personal to me, right? So when I had some issues with work after having back surgery, I couldn't participate in my normal routine. So I thought that my world was over as far as my job and what I can do to provide for myself, but also for you. Mm -hmm. So when that happened, I didn't see what else I could possibly do um, to vent, like to help myself. So that was really difficult. And it puts you in like a very, very like terrible, um, outlook. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I can feel that connection with him. If that is truly a part of it, where he felt that everything that he tried to accomplish was just over. Yeah. Like what can I contribute into my future? And that's hard. And no matter how close your family is, that's not always going to help. Right. So that, I truly think that he did that. Like he, he committed suicide. I think that it was just the depression took the, over. I think just the fact that he made a mistake and it was overwhelming. And even though it wasn't so serious, from a but a twenty-two year old who's yeah. never been to jail, spending a night in jail, and now his future is over. Yeah, right. It's very, very overwhelming. Right, exactly. So maybe that's what it is. Who knows? Yeah. You know. But that is why this case does continue to remain a mystery to people. Another thing that kind of opened up a lot of doors and questions was the fact that when his body was found, it was just a skeleton with clothes on. So it was really hard for a coroner to determine time of death. They did say that the angle from which the gun was shot and the bullet entered his skull, that it was a self-inflicted wound, but the most they could date back his death to was one to two years. So that creates this question of now he had been missing for six years from the point when he went missing to his body being found so was he alive between that and that would go to like curl said she saw him but could it have been because you know what i mean like i'm seeing posters and i want some attention possibly it could be anything it's it's hard if there was i'll put it this way if there was evidence video evidence of him being present, then yeah. then we can have a totally different conversation. But just based on eyewitness testimony of one person right. and a signature that might have looked like her son's, let's just say, it's not enough. Yeah, I would know. I would say that probably the signature can also be explained as like someone like in the homeless community or just someone who was trying to remain anonymous, just signing that name because honestly the posters were all around the town, so I mean, I don't get me wrong. I do think that the the name being used, the last name being used, is a little is odd. Weird. But guess what? Those posters were up and down um, from Kansas to Montana. Maybe right. one of these homeless people just decided to pick the freaking name up and use it and sign it. Right, that's what I just said. Yeah, I'm sorry. I wasn't paying attention. To I you. know, but I apologize. <laughs> um, but like, like, yeah, it's possible. So we're both right. We are both right. We we came to the conclusion separately and also together. Yeah, so. exactly. Wow, I'm really dumb. <laughs> You're Love not. you, babe. <laughs> well, um, we'd be really interested to hear what you think about the Braden Fusca case. Um, whether or not you think that it was a suicide or foul play. Foul play or just that maybe like time had passed and then the suicide, no matter what, it's a really devastating case because this was um a kid who de- totally had a future but was led to believe that he didn't. So it's sad because he did seem like an amazing person and he had an amazing family that had his back. So 
it's just it's really sad that it took place absolutely so um we just want to let our patreons know that tomorrow we are going to be dropping the first patreon episode of april and the next episode that we have we're going to do our patreon shout out we like doing it at the end of the month so we can collect all of our new patreons and 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 that way also Kay can practice the names i know so bad at it (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) but um if you're interested in becoming a patreon you can join us at patreon.com slash true crime couple and we just want to thank you again for reviews that are being left we love them we're putting them up on our instagram page and that's it that's it we hope you're enjoying your time at home with your loved ones yep All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.